0: So take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 20. We're going to continue our study, Acts 20. There are several strands of historical and contextual details that will help us tremendously as we dive into our passage today. Well, One of the things that's uh, interesting is that there is a change from third to first person in our narrative here. In verse 1, Luke writes as a historian as he uh, interviews people and has eyewitness testimony. So that's the third person. then in verse 5, he switches to the first person and starts using us, or we, in verse 6. And you'll notice the passage kind of gathering in details. It's obvious that he was there because of of the detailed accounts. And then Luke is reporting what he saw as he joined the missionary team at Philippi. And that's the place we last find Luke in Acts 16. Now, there are a lot of different names that are mentioned in this passage in in Acts 20. And I want us to acknowledge that these are not just incidental details. They all make a statement to the level of care that Paul provides by investing in leaders that accompany him on these missionary journeys and by visiting the other churches to encourage them. It tips us off to a very highly relational style that Paul had. I, th- I think we often miss this because, I mean, what's he doing when he's visiting all these cities? What's he doing as he's meeting with all of these people, except building relationships, encouraging? enjoying community with the body of Christ. He, he doesn't have a CEO type of, of model of ministry that's removed from people. Uh, the relational model would position other you know, pastors and elders to lead these churches by the way that Paul has set for them and, and modeled. Now, I've said this before, that I, I hear pastors talk about, you know, you know i i like vision casting and you know i like preaching but i'm just not good with people well that's like saying i really suck as a pastor <laughs> okay because you can't be a good shepherd and pastor without being good with people right it, it the job necessitates that right you you can't say you know I'm good, I'm a great doctor, I just uh, can't read any of the lab work, or I don't know how to operate well, and I don't like instruments, or I don't, I love being a mechanic, I'm just not good with tools, or you have all these things that in other areas, you, you have to be, you know, have some kind of uh, experience and hopefully expertise in these areas, and Paul certainly did in terms of, uh, of relating well. We see this also, how Paul was very anxious when things were wrong and, and there was disunity. And we'll talk about that more later because it gets to this, you know, how much it was on his heart to relate well to the, to the body. Thirdly, we see here the Apostle Paul yearning to go to Jerusalem. And as we move on in our series, we'll see this more and more. But we know from the passages, other passages that are outside of Acts 20, that Jerusalem was destitute, the Jerusalem church, was very much in need of, of having food and money because of a great famine there at the Jerusalem church. So Paul gathered up offerings from these various churches that he visited throughout this region that we see in our passage here, and he, he visited them and he gathered up money to take to this Jerusalem church to bless them. There's an amazing nugget that we find in our passage today that's related to this that we will talk about later. I think Luke writes this passage much like we often tell our family stories. You know, you'll be gathering around the table for a meal, and somebody will say, do you remember when we went to so-and-so? And, And, you know, people kind of nod in agreement, and maybe you'll laugh because of a funny story, or go, oh, yeah, I remember that everybody understands, you know, the, the details, and they, they will nod in agreement, right? Well, our passage today necessitates that we fill in some details so that at the end we can kind of nod in agreement and go, ah. Oh. Okay. So that's the story. And, and I think that you'll see at the end, the, the, the payoff hopefully is something really worth um, staying for the whole sermon. All right. <laughs> Uh, So let's look at Acts 20, and let's all stand as we take a look at this, all right? We'll look at the first six verses. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and uh, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, uh, and the Asians, uh, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. The application form of a certain college contained the question, are you a leader? Are you a leader? One student pondered the question for a long time in view of her high school record which contained no athletic or scholarly achievements and no student offices. She honestly answered the inquiry. And so she put down, No, I am not a leader. During the waiting period, which always accompanies an application process, the young woman wondered uh, whether she should have adjusted the facts slightly and maybe put, Yes, I'm a leader. But she just waited. She waited anxiously. And eventually, she got a letter that said this Welcome to our college. A study of our application forms for next year shows that we have 1,452 leaders in the freshman class, and they certainly need at least one follower. (laughs) In his book, Rediscovering the Soul of Leadership, Eugene Haybecker emphasizes the essential connection between leading and following. He said, whenever I talk with leaders throughout the course of this book, I do so in the context of the leader as being one who can both follow and lead. Whenever I discuss followers, I mean a follower who can both lead and follow. And as we look at this list of people who are following Paul, they've learned to serve as servant leaders, they also are leaders of their respective churches where they minister, and we read of many who accompanied and followed the Apostle Paul, and they were no less important, vitally needed in expanding the kingdom of God. This group of a half-dozen church leaders, along with Luke, accompanied Paul, but still, why? would Luke mention them by name? You don't know who these people are. You will never meet them, at least on this earth. Why does he mention them? Maybe it's because as followers of Jesus and followers of Paul, Luke wanted to make sure that we knew that they were critical to the success of the expansion of the kingdom and of the early church. The Holy Spirit makes sure through the pen of Paul that these people are mentioned. Not just incidental, but important to the success of the church. If I were writing a memoir of being a pastor of Christ Community Church or writing a journal a testament to the past season of CCC. I couldn't help but list Joel and Derek and Nick as those who've prayed for and, and led the saints. I couldn't help but list Laura and Kim and Katie and Kyle and Gary, Jerry, Mike, and Vicky, who, who serve as full or part-time staff and labor with sincere full hearts and clear eyes to see the kingdom of God equipped and expanded. I think of the small group leaders of Nathan and Rebecca and Jordan and Ashley and Randy and Sonia, Chandler and Katie, Eric and Aubrey, Luke and Dana, Gary and Jessica, Thomas, Gail, who open up their lives and some their homes as a respite for the body, as an emergency room for the herding as an outpost for laughter and sharing a meal. I think of Buzz and Lynn, Gary and Dawn, Tyler, Janet, Chandler, Ashley, Barry, and others who, who lead in ministry groups to see the saints of Christ Community Church encouraged. There are many others who serve in ways behind the scenes, that you might not ever meet, but without them, we couldn't do what we do. They meet for prayer, they sing, they, they clean, they write apps, they do graphics, they wire routers, they paint, they plant flowers and a host of other duties that have to be done, not only around here on campus, but, but elsewhere. They are critical to the ongoing process of CCC progressing in the kingdom of God, and expanding, and equipping, and encouraging. They're all needed. Paul leaves Ephesus. Our passage tells us in verse 1, after a near riot, if you missed that section, you can look back on Acts 19 and, and read about it, but a man named Demetrius had gathered up some other people and Apparently thousands had gathered in an outside auditorium there at Ephesus. And they were after Paul's hide. God rescued him. But Paul wanted to stay there and encourage the believers. And notice it says that in verse one. And he visited several cities and provided much encouragement. It says in verse two, Paul always took the time to address the heart, to encourage and edify the saints. He treasured the personal relationships with the saints over just counting how many saints he had. We even see a personal touch in how he conveyed the message. He goes from preaching to, in verse 7, talking to them. And in verse 11, he conversed with them. You get the idea there's a, there's a back and forth, there's a Q&A going on here, there's a dialogue. Now, preaching certainly has its place, and it's necessary for the body. But conversing, dialoguing, answering questions are just as important, and we should be taking a cue from Paul to include that in our community activities. Syria is mentioned here, and you see a map here. You see Syria on the right at the bottom. And notice it just touches Jerusalem there. You can barely read it, but uh, it's where Syria and Judea meet. And it was Paul's intention to go there, and specifically to Jerusalem. But a plot was discovered, our passage tells us, that threatened Paul's life. Now, it's not that Paul was fearful of death. It's not that, you know, he was in the belly of a ship in a fetal position, you know, not wanting to die. that wasn't the case at all, but he had a mission to accomplish. He had people to see that he wanted to encourage, and he wanted to get to Jerusalem because they had gathered up an offering from these various cities, various churches and people to give to this Jerusalem church because they were in such dire need. And this reroute that took place allowed him to send a group of about a half dozen other men to Troas ahead of him so that they could help with encouraging the church and then gathering, collecting, preparing the gift for the Jerusalem church. I suppose at first glance, these names that he gives seem rather innocuous. But the majority of the names are Gentile names. This is really an illustration of a torta force of grace. How could it be in light of this region that was rife with racial and religious divisions between Jew and Gentile? How is it that these Gentile churches would gather up money to help out their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ? This only happens because the gospel had broken down the dividing wall. Ephesians 2 tells tells us that. This is something that plagues human nature. We naturally go with our own tribe, right? That's what feels comfortable. But through the power of the Spirit, we learn that there are cords that run through the family of God that are more dynamic than the natural-born families that we grew up in. We read this as Ephesians describes unity, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice that unity is, is not just a spiritual state, but it's something we're to maintain and practice. In other words, we're to obey the spirit of God in walking in unity. We're to be consistent with our calling and our identity in Christ as children of God. Now, unity is not best expressed when we're comfortable in our own tribe, but rather when we are in the company of diverse people and Christ unites our hearts together. It's an amazing thing. Just like we witnessed yesterday at Tom Watkins Park as black and white churches got together, celebrated the unity that they enjoy. There's a parallel passage to Acts 20, that we find in the book of 2 Corinthians. You might remember that the church at Corinth, which was a part of of Greece, just below Macedonia, that it was in a sad state, the church was. Uh, There was considerable disunity. Remember when Paul says, you know, there's some of you that say, you know, I'm with Barnabas, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Paul, and then you have the... Uber spiritual people, I'm with Jesus, only Jesus. You have these, you have these unity and uh, disunity and factions going on, right? And then there was immorality. There were people sleeping within laws. I mean, it was gross stuff going on. And then there was spiritual immaturity. That was the church at Corinth. And Paul wrote them a letter to address these issues, And, you know, he wanted to be loving and yet not skirt the issues. And he said of his letter in 2 Corinthians 2.4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, as you can imagine, you know, when you confront people, right, Uh, this created considerable tension with many people within the church at Corinth. Because when you do that, people don't like to be reminded of, of reality. For, for Paul, what happened is they began to question his apostleship. In other words, who in the heck do you think you are, Paul? They're telling us this stuff. You're, you're no apostle. So they would question his authority. So Paul sends then a letter delivered by Titus to kind of address some of these issues. And he was very anxious to hear how the Corinthians responded to his loving rebuke. Now, he was to meet Titus initially at Troas to get this report, but Titus couldn't make the trip. So Paul went then on to Macedonia to hasten getting a report from Titus. And we read again in 2 Corinthians, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was open for me and the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul was just like you and me. You know, when you know that there's something between you and somebody else and there's a there's a consternation, there's an unrest, you know, when things aren't right, you can hardly sleep at night, you're anxious, That's that was Paul. And he was... He was nervous and knowing how it was received, but for their sake, because he wanted unity to be there and there was disunity and man, you know, you just hate that. That's what he's saying. In Macedonia, probably in Philippi, Paul met up with Titus, finally got together. And Titus brought Paul the joyous news that the letter had had its desired effect. The offenders had been disciplined that were practicing immorality. They had repented of the immorality. And the church had become reconciled to the truth and to Paul. And, And Paul would say, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. In other words, there's outside interference, We have these relational issues, but my heart is also at unrest. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he is comforted by you. Has he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more? For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So there's a relational strand there. By the way, Also while he was in Macedonia, he wrote the book of Romans. So, intermingled in these travels are relational stressors and important ministry advancements that indicate that God was working mightily in the midst of this mess. I mean, most people just see Acts 20 as kind of a, a travel log of events, a, an outline of activity from Macedonia to Troas. And for the church today, you might just see a, an outline of things, you know, a, a Sunday morning with people raising their hands, a, a well-rehearsed presentation on the stage. But is that all there is to the Christian life? No. In fact, sometimes it's incongruent with the reality of the Christian life, with what is presented up on a stage. God forgive us if that's ever the case here. It's at the least not the whole story, right? I mean, behind the scenes of Acts 20, we read of blood, sweat, and tears being poured out because of the, this anguish over sin, this confrontation that took place and, and disunity, and for anybody who's in ministry more than five minutes, you know that this is a part of the backstory. and the part of any place that's healthy that they experience these seasons. I mean, for a step forward, it seems like you take a step or two back with gut shots of accusations and lies, but Paul was willing to sail the seas, to find restoration, and God did a mighty work to bring unity from a mess. He sailed the seas because these people weren't getting along, and he wanted to make sure that the relationship was right. Are you you catching this? I mean, how far are we willing to go for unity? Why do we give up so easily before it's attained? I mean, I would expect disunity in the political world. And boy, don't we have it. I would expect disunity at places of employment, you know, People trying to climb the ladder, you know. I'd expect that. I'd expect that. But the church is a different bird. It's called for a different purpose. And it's inhabited by people who have the Holy Spirit and therefore all the ingredients necessary to experience unity. Paul traveled overseas to make things right. I mean, those kinds of sacrifices, that extent of obedience is something produced by the Holy Spirit. Because naturally, I mean, when we walk by the flesh, what are those characteristics like? Well, in fact, God has told us. God has given a commentary that humans left to themselves walking in the flesh. That means outside of the Holy Spirit, just humanly speaking, Here's just a glimpse of it, Galatians 5.20. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. You're saying, well, that just described my past church. And Unfortunately, we all experience it, whether it's in a family or a season in a church. We all have experienced that. Those are the expected characteristics of humans left to themselves. I mean, even in the world, if there's an, an inspiring season, you know, of kindness and love and forgiveness and grace, it's short-lived. And I mentioned it last week. I mean, after 9-11, you had this unity in our country and then pff, just seemed to be gone in just a few weeks. The human species sure knows well how to create enmity, strife, disunity, talking behind people's backs, not encouraging, being for self, making sure everybody knows, you know, how we fit in the narrative, so we're the hero. We are great at that. We don't need help at that. That comes naturally. Even animals seem to know better. ABC News filed a report several years ago that makes this point. As cubs, three of the world's top predators, a lion, a Bengal tiger, and an American black bear were owned by a drug dealer who did not take care of them. The bears harness grew into his skin because the owner didn't alter it as the animal grew. The animals were abused, neglected early in life until they were rescued in 2001. The bear's harness had to be surgically removed and all three recovered, 100%. And they were taken to a place called Noah's Ark Animal Sanctuary in Georgia. Georgia. And the staff initially separated them, thinking that these large predators who normally fight would just act out, you know, if they were together. But in fact, the opposite was true. During separation, the animals were uncooperative. But once they were reunited, they calmed down and behaved well. And over a decade later, these three friends spend their time together (laughs) playing ball, cuddling, chasing each other, and eating cookies. (laughs) Allison Hedgecough of Noah's Ark said, they live together and they don't see their differences. They don't see their color differences. What is it that has caused these animals to actually comfort one another? Maybe it's the same thing that comforts human beings. The hardships and even the abuse that they experienced caused them to depend on one another for survival. The Apostle Paul alludes to that when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. I think of these church leaders who gave so generously to the Jerusalem church. People of a different race and and background. But they could understand poverty they knew what hardship was like. They understood need. And from that place, God gave them compassion. Perhaps what we miss more than anything is the time, and I would say the choice, to listen to brothers and sisters in need. I mean, let's face it, our schedules are so packed, right? Our electronic devices are too compelling our hearts are so divided that taking time to listen to others especially others not naturally in our tribe that seems unmanageable perhaps the need of the hour is a little bit more margin where the spirit of god has given some opportunity to work through us perhaps we need to take some more time to listen we need to take the time to enter into a community where it's not our comfort zone. If it's hard, that is community. That's what it's supposed to be. And you work through that. And as you work through that, the value raises in your eyes. Anybody here had an easy marriage and not one argument, not one issue? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly but isn't it going through that? I mean, as I look at 39 years it'll be for Janet and I in December, and I look at all the things we have gone through, you know, we tell these stories, and I think, man, I I would not want to go through it again, but I realized God was working, molding us together and and humbling us. You go through the hardships, it brings you together. But if we would have, you know, run from each other, Divorced, we never enjoyed the unity that you enjoy. The hardship is a part of the deal. But we run. We don't sail the seas to find the reconciliation. Robert Frost, American poet, he wrote, The Road Not Taken. He says this, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how one stays on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. The one less traveled by. The one less easy. The one less traveled. But a one that can create community. If we'll but open up our hearts and take the time to listen.